all right, we could do this a lot longer, and maybe we will sometimes. Um, I don't even care if you guys sit in your circles. Uh, I don't, it doesn't matter, but does anybody have any thoughts that they want to share about Psalm 1? Or any questions? What? I'll get into some of that to this morning. The question. Yeah. Okay. So you're you're asking the question is what is it what does it say in the Hebrew? And I'll touch on that um, because there are some places where like stand in the way means something in English that it doesn't mean in Hebrew. Um, so we'll touch on that. By the way, do you guys like doing that? Yeah. Of course, no one's going to say, no, I hate that. <laughs> actually, at Crossroads, someone actually might say that, and I would respect you for it. Any other thoughts or observations? It's a strong way to kick off the book. Oh, it's strong, isn't it? Yeah, it's, and it's in just how brief six verses can make such an impact to start off, especially such a great book of the Bible. Yeah. It is black and white. And you know what? The Hebrew way of thinking is very black and white. And we look at this, we're almost like, this is too simplistic. But as we're going to see, there are two paths. There are two kinds of people. There are two kinds of trees. That's it. There's no third path. You're either on this path or you're on this path. You're either a tree planted by the water or you're chaff. Anything else? Yeah. Yeah. He's just mentioning the fruit in season that this tree produces. And I'm not going to touch on this this morning, so I'm glad you mentioned that, though. But if you think about tree growth, tree growth is not like tomorrow it's a big tree. It's organic. It's, it's slow. It's gradual. It's, it's inside out. And it's enduring the seasons, you know. It, it has to go through all the same seasons that a fledgling tree has to go through. This one's strong. Any other comments? What do you think of that? It's not just people. It's places. It's things. Thank you. All right. I like this. It's a strong word. Let's dive into it. Um, I like how this connection connects with Ephesians. If you guys have been here this summer, we've been going through the book of Ephesians. And the first three chapters of Ephesians dealt with um, all that we are in Christ. And then the next four chapters talks about the difference it makes in our life, that when Christ comes into our life, we change from the inside out. And Paul talks in those chapters a lot about how we change. There's this this taking off and there's this putting on. There's this idea about being strong in the Lord. Well, I think the psalm that we're looking at today answers this question, how do I change? I think a lot of it's right here. This psalm, actually, too, is, is actually my dad's favorite psalm. You guys have heard me preach my favorite psalm, so I thought I'd, I'd preach uh, my, my dad's favorite psalm. Just a word about the psalms uh, before we get into this particular psalm. The psalms, or the Psalter, as some call it, is the book of prayer in the Bible. So if you're, you're looking to develop your prayer life, if you're, if you're wondering how, how to pray, the best place to go is the Psalms. I love the Psalms. I can point to Psalms in the same way I can point to pop songs 
uh, to different parts of my life. Like Psalm 25, when, when I was in high school, was everything to me. Uh, Psalm 42, when my marriage was falling apart, and Psalm 40 was everything to me. I can label Psalms with periods of my life. I love the Psalms, because it's the prayer book. It's the book of praise and, and prayer. So, is it an accident that Psalm 1 is the first Psalm? And I want to answer that question, because I studied that this this week. Absolutely not. It's not just by coincidence that Psalm 1 is put here because the book of Psalms was carefully crafted and there was a lot of thought into why this is Psalm 1, why this is Psalm 2. In fact, there are five books of the Psalms that are very carefully put together. So why is this then the first Psalm? Well, what's this psalm about? And see, without getting ahead of ourselves, this psalm is about meditating on the law of the Lord. So think about this. In a book about prayer, does it seem strange to you at all that the first word about prayer is about meditating on God's word? I like what Eugene Peterson had to say. He said, if Psalm 1 is the first psalm in a whole book about prayer, then meditation must be the key to prayer. And so I want us to see that we are stepping into something hugely important as it relates to prayer. And if we're going to develop a rich life of prayer, meditation will be at the heart of our prayer life. So let's get into this psalm. Verse 1, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked. Now, we've looked at this word blessed before. Abraham, I'm going to bless you. In Hebrew, it's the word barach, which means what? I know someone knows. You're just bashful right now. It means to bow down. It means literally to bend the knee. However... That's not the word here. (laughs) It's the word Asher. In fact, if you have the name Asher, uh, what Asher means is happy, joyful, deeply satisfied. So, oh, how happy is the one. Oh, how full of joy is the one who does not do some things, but who does one thing. In fact, here are the things that he or she does not do. Number one, this happy person, this deeply satisfied person, does not walk in the advice of the wicked. Listen to me. This is not saying, and this I think is very important, that they don't walk with the wicked because we are called to do life with and among the ungodly. But how it reads, do not walk in the, in the advice or in the counsel of the ungodly. In other words, do not walk in accordance to their values and according to their worldview. Do not become like them as you're amongst them. That's the first thing. The second thing it says is do not stand in the way of sinners. Now, the preposition there, in the way of, needs really to be this preposition. It needs to be the word on. Do not stand on that way, on that path. On what path? The path of the ungodly. In fact, as I mentioned, the psalmist basically says that there are two paths. There's the path that the godly walk. Then there's the other path of the wicked. There is no third path. And this psalm is saying, blessed is the one who does not step foot on the path of the ungodly. In fact, these two words, path and walk, which are in our first two verses, give us the whole Hebraic conception of what it means to be a man or woman of God. 
of what it means to be a godly person. Because to the Hebrew, it's all about the path. The word path in Hebrew is derech. And I, I like to think of that. I saw this word all the time when I was over in Israel uh, because paths and roads are all over the place. And every time I thought of derech tages, because that's the same word, derech, path. It's all about the path. It's all about the walk. The word for walk in Hebrew is halach. Because godliness to the Jew is finding God's path, derech, and walking it, halaking. And if you remember, this all begins with Abraham. God's first word to Abraham was what? Lech. Lech lecha. Lech is the command form of the word halak. Abraham, start walking. Then later God says to Abraham, Abraham, halak, walk before me. And the picture is, it's like a little kid who, who for the first time is starting to walk and they have their dad or their mom behind them because God is now teaching Abraham how to walk. And then it's capped off with Abraham. Let me show you my path, my derech. Walk up that mountain, Moriah. I want you to offer what's most precious to you. And see, what Abraham did is he found God's path, and he walked it. That's the picture of godliness. And all the biblical greats, when you read the Bible, they have this word halach, walk, attached to them. Enoch halached with God. Noah halached with God. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they halacked, they walked with God. Moses and Joshua, they all found God's path, and they walked it. So then when you get to the New Testament, Jesus unleashes his whole ministry with what word? Lech. Lech, the command to walk. Lechacharai, walk after me, which we translate, follow me. That's a disciple. It's someone who walks after Jesus. They find Jesus' path and they walk it. That's why even Paul in Ephesians, when he's now starting to talk about what the transformed life looks like, in Ephesians 4 verse 1, he says, I beg you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. In 4 verse 17, he says, do not walk as the Gentiles walk. Why? Because the world has a walk. Do not walk in the advice or the counsel of the wicked. In chapter 5 verse 8, Paul says, walk as children of the light. 5 verse 15, he says, be careful how you walk. Don't waste your life. And 5 verse 2, which I think is... um, The supreme thing that Paul says about walk, he says, but walk as Christ walked. Because here's why Jesus came to the world. Not just to be born and to die and to be resurrected and raised, but he also came to the world to show us how to walk. That's why John, 1 John 2 says, if anyone is in Christ, he will walk as Christ walked. So what does your walk look like? Does your walk look like Jesus? Do you even know what Jesus' walk looked like? What path are you on today? Do you know? There's one more thing that this blessed person, this happy person, this full of joy person does not do. He does not sit in the seat of mockers. What's a mocker? This word in Hebrew is lightsum. means to make light of. <laughs> to the mocker, nothing is sacred. In fact, the word lightsum in Hebrew today is their word for clown. Everything in life to the mocker is a joke. 
even the most sacred things. I read that and I think, isn't that our world today? Tell me right now one thing that's sacred in our world. Tell me. What's sacred? Besides football. Or money. I mean, nothing's treated as sacred anymore. Bodies aren't treated as sacred. Life isn't treated as sacred. Marriage isn't treated as sacred. We don't have any sacred days. We don't have any sacred traditions. And God of all realities is the least sacred. Everything is a joke. A joke to the wicked. Now here's what the blessed person does. Look at verse 2. His delight. (laughs) He's happy because his delight is in the right thing. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Now, I'm going to be honest right now. When I first read this, the wind goes out of my sails because I'm with him when he says, because his delight is in the law? Come on, tell me you don't feel that just a little bit. The law. I mean, come on, we're Americans. We don't like law. We buck against law. We buck against rules. And we're Christians. The law is what we're saved from. It's cursed. Let me ask you this. What is the law of the Lord? And you don't have to say it right now, but ask yourself, what what right now is coming to your mind? I think a lot of us think the Ten Commandments and all those rules and those places in Scripture where God commands us to live a certain way. And my answer to that is, yep, that is a part of the law. And this text is saying, is blessed is the man or the woman, the young person who absolutely loves for God to tell them what to do and how to live. But it's more than that. The word in Hebrew, does anyone know? Torah. Okay, now Torah specifically refers to the first five books of the Bible which would have been what David had at this, I don't know if this is David, but whoever the psalmist is, um, that is, that would have been the entire part of God's word at this time. So more generally speaking, Torah is God's word. But what we do with this word Torah is we translate it as law. And in doing so, I think we completely m- misunderstand what Torah is. See, to them what Torah is, is it's God's instruction, it's God's direction, it's God's teachings. It includes law, but it's God's revelation of himself. It's God opening up his heart and saying, this is what my heart is, and this is what I'm doing, and this is where this whole story's going, and this is who you are, and this is your place in all this. And see, as moderns, I think how we just think is we just assume the fact that we live in a world that's light. That's why we call it an enlightened world or the enlightenment. It's this idea that the human mind and human ingenuity, human achievement, just light up our world. I'll tell you how the ancients thought. The ancients didn't believe the world was light at all. The ancients believed that the world was dark. It was so dark, we can't see. Have you ever been in that place? 
Well, she's so dark. And I'm talking physically, but maybe some of you right there are there right now emotionally and spiritually. It's your reality. But I remember this time last summer when Gabe and I were at this uh, conference for father and sons. And Gabe wanted to stay out later, hanging out with a bunch of friends that he had made. And I was going to go back to our cabin, which was about a three-football field walk. I got halfway there, away from everything, and all of a sudden... I was away from all the light, and it was completely pitch black. Well, I'm a guy, okay? So rather than going back and getting a flashlight, I'm like, I'll figure this out. (laughs) But I had to go through a woods. And I'm not not kidding you. I couldn't see anything. And the other thing I remember is that there was a a river flowing, uh, and so I had to find the exact spot where the bridge was. So I'm literally, I'm going through the woods like this, touching trees, until I finally remembered that I had my uh, cell phone. (laughs) (laughs) And just a little light. See, to the ancient, your word is a light to my path, a lamp to my feet. See, it's not just a bunch of rules. It's God's instruction. It's God's direction. It's God's light to my darkness. Because the first act of God's creation was to speak into the darkness and his word, his powerful word, brought what? Light. In fact, his word brought the entire cosmos into being. His word's powerful. And see, what food and water and air is to our body, Torah, Torah, is to our very life. That's why Moses, at the end of his life, and Moses is the author of, the, uh, of Torah, the first five books. We say the first five books of Moses. And he gathers all the people, and he lays before them Torah. And then this is what he says to them. He says, I'm not just setting before you now Torah, but what I'm setting before you today is life and death. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to keep his commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live. But if your heart turns away and you're not obedient, if you're drawn away to bow down to other gods and to worship them, I declare to you today that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live. This day I call the heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death. Choose life. Choose it. So that you and your children may live. That's what Torah is. It's, it's, it's life. And see, I think sometimes we think that God just created us for, for mere survival. He didn't. You know what he created us for? Life. And see, God didn't just throw his word at us the way someone might throw a life jacket at someone who's, who's drowning. God gave us his word so that we could live. Really live. And outlive everyone around us. And so if you want to find the path, here it is. And if you want to know who you are and why you're here, it's right here. And if you want to find life, it's, it's, it's right here in Torah. And if you want to know where the living word Jesus is, you, you don't go around this. He's right here. He's here. In fact, if you want to know where the axis mundi is, where heaven and earth meet, where, where the door into God is, it's, it's right here. Because it's in here where his living word is. Now the Jews in Jesus' day had this practice that before they went into temple, they did mikvah. If you don't know what mikvah is, mikvah is just a form of baptism. They'd go into the waters and they would wash their head, their heart, their hands, and their feet as a way to say, God, I want to be right. I want to be right with you. I want to be washed. I want to be cleansed. And why did they do this before they went into temple? 
because they were approaching the holy of holies, the raw presence of God. They also did mikvah before they entered synagogue. Why synagogue? Because in their mind, who is worthy to open the scrolls? Who's worthy to open Torah? You see, that's exactly John's question in Revelation 5. Who's worthy to open the scroll? Who's worthy to open Torah? Because to them, Torah was the holy of holies. Who's worthy? And I want to know right now how many of you treat God's word that way. That when you open this, that you are entering into the Holy of Holies. Now, what does it mean to meditate? See, here's where I think Eastern religion has just dominated our way of looking at this word meditation because when I think of meditation, literally, I think of some Buddhist monk who's in this calm, quiet, peaceful place staring at his navel, right? Just trying to do what? Empty himself. In Isaiah 31, verse 4, which I don't have marked, but I'll quickly try to find it. It says, As a lion growls, a great lion over its prey. Let me show you a picture of that. I know, some of you don't like blood. Let me read this in the Hebrew, or at least the verb. As a lion hagaz and growls over its prey. See that lion? He's happy right now, isn't he? He is full of delight. Why? He's hagahin. That's the word for meditate. And so to meditate, it's not this passive, quiet, peaceful act of emptying oneself, but it's treating God's word like a hungry lion treats its prey. It's intense. It's aggressive. There's activity. There's passion. It's all about taking in and filling myself with something that's just going to absolutely delight me. The first use of this word, Hagah, to meditate is in Joshua 1 verse 8, where God says to Joshua, Hazak, be strong, courageous, and be careful to do every word that is written in this book. Meditate on it day and night. See, that's what the kings are supposed to do. You can read about this in Deuteronomy 17. They are to literally take the word of God into them. But it's not just for the kings. It's not just for the rulers. Because at the end of Joshua, in Joshua 23, he calls his people to Hagah. Meditate on Torah. Revelation 10, 9 and 10. I love this. John is just hungry for, for God's revelation. And, well, I didn't write that one down either. And this is uh, what it says. So I went to the angel and I asked him to give me the scroll. Give me Torah. He said to me, take it. <laughs> Not read it. Take it and what? Eat it. And he says, it'll turn your, your stomach sour, but in your mouth it'll be as sweet as honey. So John took the, the scroll from the angel's hand, and he did what? He ate it, and it tasted as sweet as honey, he says, in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. I love this, because not only did, did John take the Torah and eat it, you know who else did? Tell me who else did this. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they ate the book. 
In other words, we don't simply just read our Bibles to learn it, to figure it out, so we can be right. We eat it, we chew it, we swallow it, we digest it. It goes through our whole system, out our pores. We take it into our minds, we push it into our hearts, and then we let it get worked in and out of all our life. Now here's part of the problem, I think, for us in the Western world. See, the mind for us in the human body is where? I know this is so basic. It's up here, right? You're like, holy cow, where's this guy going right now? And you know what else we do? We separate the mind and the heart. Hebraically and biblically, the mind isn't up here. The mind is here. Because the heart, biblically, is the mind, it's the emotions, and it's the will all rolled into one. There's no separation. I want you to think about that for a moment. Your mind being down here. See, this is why Paul says, confess with your mouth and believe with what? Your heart. He's a Hebrew. You believe with not just your mind, you believe it with your heart. That's why Jesus says, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. See, there's a big difference from speaking from up here and speaking from down here. Where do you speak from? Where do you believe from? See, to speak from up here is NPR radio. Complete monotone. Why? Because I am an intellectual. And I have no emotion. Because this pollutes this. Hebraically, there's no separation. That's why in the Old Testament, Shema, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your life, has to be changed by Luke when he's writing to Greeks, to Westerners. He has to say, now love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, because there's a separation between the two. And see, this is what happens when it comes to the Bible. We just put it up here. And we read the Bible simply so we can know the information, get all the facts, so we can be right. But listen, if that's all we do is just put it in our minds, I'm going to tell you right now, there's not going to be any delight. I got it. Don't just hear it. Eat it. Don't just take it in with your ears. Take it in with your mouth. Don't just read it to get it figured out so you can have all the right answers and walk around and say, I'm right, you're wrong. That's why so many Christians are so dispassionate about what they believe. It's just up here. It's just a cognitive exercise. God's word is to be taken in and to be eaten. It's to be taken in into my heart. Yes, these truths are, are, are shaping my mind, but they're also affecting my emotions and they are certainly changing my will. See, the word of God must be made flesh in me, in you. It needs to be fleshed out. Please, I hope you're asking this question. How do I do that, Rod? I'll get really practical here. First of all, you have to know what the Bible is when you approach it. That you're approaching the very words of God. That this is God's heart. So you approach it like some would approach the Holy of Holies. I love what Martin Buber said. He says, unless you accept scripture this way, you may read, but you will never hear it. It won't be a living word from God unless you first approach it as such, as the very words of God, the place where God speaks, the place where God is, the place where we find him. 
The second thing you need to do is understand that the Bible is relentlessly a story. It doesn't just sit here and tell you what to do, but it tells you who you are. And I love what stories do. What stories do is they invite us in. They invite us to participate. You're not a spectator. This is your story. I love Isaiah 51. Listen to you who pursue righteousness, to you who seek after justice. Look to the rock from which you were cut and the quarry from which you were hewn. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave birth to you. It's our story. So we take the story in so we can live the story on, so we can cheer the story on. Yes! I'm going to get more practical. Martin Luther had a way of reading the Bible that I find very helpful. First of all, he would read it and he'd say, okay, what's this teaching? Then he would say, okay, how does this teaching or this truth lead me to praise God? Then he would say, okay, what in this teaching shows a sin right now in my life that I need to confess? And then he would ask something to the effect, okay, now in light of this teaching, what are the implications for my life? See, that's taking it in. That's eating it. So for Psalm 1, to to do what Martin Luther does, we we take it in and we take these truths in and and we ask, what's here that causes me to praise God? And, And right away, I'm like, God, you're so awesome because you actually reveal yourself and you make yourself known. You give us your word. And what is it here that I need to confess? I don't know what it is for you, but I know what it is for me when I read this. God, forgive me. I'm so lazy. My roots go into so many places they shouldn't go. And God, would you forgive me? And then what are the implications? God, would you put me on your paths? God, would you take my roots and put them into you? God, would you continue to identify ways in which I'm on the wrong path and ways in which my roots are in the wrong places? Help me. That's taking it in. And see, when we do this now, when we read it, it becomes like a burning bush experience with God. Let me push this even further. The psalmist says here, meditate on, on God's Torah Torah, day and night. Day and night. And I know how, how, how the Hebrews take this. That means I got I to gotta take it in. I, I need to memorize it. In Psalm 119, it says, How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word, I seek you, God, with all my heart. Do not let me strain from your, stray from your commands. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. How might it be that I might not sin against you? How can I keep my way pure? I've hidden your word in my heart. You know what hidden, hiding the word of God in the heart literally means? It means to memorize it. And I grew up memorizing a verse here, a verse there, sometimes a whole psalm, sometimes even a larger text, but I was shocked when we were in Israel and I went to synagogue. And the first thing I saw was when the Torah scrolls came out, everybody was dancing and celebrating and kissing them and kids kissing them. And then afterward, I was able to talk to some of these kids and I asked them, why do you kiss Torah without even flinching. They said, we love it. It's our life. And then I asked, how much of this do you have memorized? (laughs) All of it. All of it. Do you know Jesus had the whole Torah memorized? And don't just say, well, he was the son of God. He, you know, he emptied himself of all that, didn't he? 
Do you know what it says in Psalm 40? It says, I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is hidden within my heart. That verse is quoted of Jesus in Hebrews 10. That Jesus says of himself, I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is hidden within my heart. He hid God's word in his heart. Why? Because how does a young man keep his way pure? How is the son of God going to be sinless? Not just because he's the son of God, but because he is. Look at what this person will be like. Verse 3. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water. Can you see this tree? Tell me, what does a tree do with water? I know we don't have to be tree experts uh, here, but we, we know the answer to that question, right? It doesn't just look at it. It doesn't say, oh, wow, that's a beautiful stream right there. A tree feeds on that water because it needs that water to live and to grow and to bear fruit. So its roots literally go into the water, something we can't see, but yet we still know. And the roots take the water in. That water then fills the tree. It becomes life to the tree, allowing the tree to produce fruit. That tree lives. It really lives. And see, this is what the godly are like. They're like trees planted by the stream. The stream is God's word. The roots are one's heart. One's heart going into the streams of water. And I want you to think about this. A tree is not a pipe where you have water coming in on one end and then water going out the other hand. A tree takes water in on on one end. What comes out the other end? Fruit. And I love this, how it says, and it will bear fruit in season. It it, it means that it's not always bearing fruit, but it's just bearing fruit in season. In fact, it also implies that it has to endure the seasons. It has to endure the fall, the winter, the spring, the summer. If there's a drought, it has to experience the drought. If there's a famine, it has to experience the famine. In other words, for the person who's like a tree planted by water circumstances don't make them, circumstances don't break them. Why? They're rooted. They're rooted. They're stable. And see, if this imagery isn't compelling, how about the other image of chaff? He says the wicked are like chaff. What's chaff? See, not many of us are farmers anymore. So most of us are probably clueless about chaff. But the chaff is the husk of the grain. It's the exterior. It's what you see when you see the grain in the field. However, the chaff is worthless to the farmer. And because the chaff is so light, here's how a farmer gets rid of the chaff. See that? There's the grain, there's the chaff all mixed together in that pile. He simply takes his winnowing fork or his pitchfork. He just throws it up in the air. Hopefully there's a breeze that day. And what happens is the light stuff all blows away. What's the light stuff? Chaff. You know what chaff are? Are the wicked? They're chaff. They're lightweights. They are lightweights. They have no kavod. They have no glory. Kavod means weight. There's no weight that causes them to fall down like the real thing, the grain. Like dust in the wind, they just blow away. Is that you? See, Paul picks up on this in Ephesians 4. He says, oh, they're just, the wicked are blown back and forth by the waves and by the wind. They have no roots. Of course they don't have any weight or glory to them when nothing is sacred. And they're not sacred. Dust in the wind. 
That's why in verse 5, it says they can't stand in the judgment because the weight of God is going to crush them. And in the end, they will perish. And you and I will perish as well if we have no roots that go into the stream. But for the one who meditates on the Lord's Torah, I like how this thing starts. It starts and says, first, that person is blessed. Oh, how happy, fulfilled, satisfied is the person whose roots go into Torah. And it ends with, and the Lord watches over his ways. I hate doing this, but I have to. It literally reads this way. The Lord knows the path of the righteous. He knows the derech. He knows that path. And he knows the person who walks that path. And the word for know here is the Hebrew word yada, which we've talked about before. It's this specific kind of knowing. It's opposed to the Hebrew word da'at. Da'at is to know something factually. Yada comes from the root word yad, which means hand. Because when I touch something, it touches me. And we're both informing each other through that touch. It's knowledge that comes from a connection, a real connection. Yada is the knowledge that comes from the personal experience of that thing. Abraham, I'm sorry, Adam knew Eve. Adam yada Eve and begat Cain. It's that kind of knowledge. It's personal. God knows. He yadas the path, the derech of the righteous. It's Psalm 139. Where, where David says, you know me. You are intimately acquainted with all of my ways. Everything about me, wherever I am. Before a word is even on my tongue, you, you die. You know it. And David says, oh, that, so, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Do you know the Sermon on the Mount? Begins with the same word that Psalm 1 begins with, blessed. And you also know that it ends with yada. Matthew 7. Please turn there. Twenty one. Jesus now is starting to end the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father who is heaven. (laughs) Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy your name and drive out demons in your name and perform many miracles? I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And that word there, for no in Hebrew is gino, or in Greek is gnosko, which when it's translated in the Septuagint is always yada. I never knew you. Because Jesus says in John 10, my sheep, they they listen to my voice, and I I know them, I yada them, and they follow me, they walk after me. And see, we make such a big deal in the church about knowing God, and rightly so. But the bigger question is, is not do we know God, but does God know us? Does Jesus know you? And how do we know? Well, he knows the path of the righteous. In verse 24 of the Sermon on the Mount, the next verse, therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice will be like a tree. Who 
Going back to Abraham in Genesis 22. All right, Abraham, says God. Here's the path. Can you walk it? I honestly don't know how he did it. Abraham walked God's path. You know what God says to him afterward? He says, Abraham, now I know. Now I, yada, we've had this connection. Now I know, Abraham, that you love me. Let me end with this question. Do you have roots today? And where really are your roots going? See, according to the Bible, there are two kinds of people in the world. There's the godly and the ungodly. Just like there are just two paths. Just like there are just two kinds of tree, trees. One tree is rooted in the streams of water. The other one is rootless. And in the end, it just blows away. Your money won't root you. Your earthly accomplishments won't root you. Your pleasures won't root you. Even your earthly relationships, even though they may help root you, they in the end won't root you. Everything in our world is just going to blow away. And if we're rooted in that stuff, we're going to blow away with it. Got to end. Eat the book. Eat it. Let's pray. God, I want to be a person and part of a people who take it in, all of it. And I just pray today, Lord, that stakes would be put in the ground for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.